The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Peter Hahn and University of Michigan Health West in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of Full Exposure with me, your boy, Brian Kelly. Uh, I went to Haiti few weeks ago, Mark and I went down to Port-au-Prince, Haiti to do a few things, one of which is this podcast uh, with Mitch Album, the author, journalist, broadcaster, philanthropist, uh, etc., etc. Um, if you don't know who Mitch Album is, you might know him from way back in the day and still to this day as a columnist for the Detroit Free Press, uh, writes mostly about sports kind of came up as a sports journalist, and then he wrote the mega-selling, best-selling memoir of all time, Tuesdays with Maury. And then he went on to write uh, everything he does seems to be a New York Times bestseller. He went on to write The Five People You Meet in Heaven, Finding Chica, The Timekeeper for One More Day, among many other books. His latest book right now is The Stranger in the Lifeboat, and it is now available everywhere. So... um, before I go any further, I want to give a special shout out to University of Michigan Health West. They underwrote uh, uh, some of the cost, uh, uh, definitely, for this episode to take place at the Have Faith Haiti Mission in Port-au-Prince. And uh, without their support, I don't know if we would have done this trip quite the way that we did it. I am working on another project uh, down there with the orphanage, and so... Uh, their extra support for this episode was was amazing and incredible. So thank you very much to University of Michigan Health West and Dr. Peter Hahn for helping to uh, get us down and back safely to Haiti. So you might be wondering, what does Mitch Album have to do with Haiti and Port-au-Prince? And the short answer to that is, uh, which Mitch does describe how he got involved so deeply with this uh, Have Faith Haiti mission, I'll give you another quick uh, intro to why Mitch is spending so much of his time in, uh, in Haiti at the Have Faith Haiti Mission. Uh, basically, the short story is the massive earthquake that struck Haiti in 2010. Um, Mitch caught wind that there was an orphanage run by a Detroit pastor. As you know, uh, Mitch lives in Detroit, and uh, he thought he would try to go down and help this orphanage to recover from this earthquake and he was they weren't sure if the orphanage had been destroyed originally or if there was anybody there or uh, what kind of uh, things they might need. Well, anyway, through a series of trips over six months to bring resources and supplies to this orphanage, um, basically this pastor that was running the the orphanage approached Mitch and said, you know, I, I can't run this anymore. I don't have the resources. And Mitch said, uh, I love these kids and I'm going to run this orphanage and I'll assume responsibility. So that's the, the short answer. So since 2010, Mitch has been deeply involved in the kids' lives. Um, he's built a school there. He's hired uh, faculty, teachers. The kids are all taught French, English, and of course they speak their native Creole language. So the kids are trilingual. It is an amazing place. It is an inspiring place, and it's a place full of love that stems from 
first of all, Mitch and his wife, Janine, and how they care for these kids. Uh, one thing to note, if you say the word orphanage, you might think adoptions are happening, and, and that's not what happens at the Have Faith Haiti mission. If a child is, accept, is accepted at the orphanage, uh, Mitch commits to their well-being until adulthood and through college. So they live at the orphanage. They get all their medical care, all their education, all their nutrition, all their family and support uh, right there at the Have Faith Haiti Mission. They don't adopt kids out, and Mitch uh, pays for all of this through his foundation and his personal uh, commitment. He and his wife's, uh, Janine's personal finances are very much involved in running this orphanage on top of contributions that anyone can make to the havefaithhaiti.org website. I'd encourage you to flip a five or ten bucks or whatever you can afford to help. You can check out more about the orphanage at the Have Faith Haiti. It's just called havefaithhaiti.org uh, is where you'll find the orphanage and more about the backstory. So Mitch uh, will go into great detail. We have a great conversation. I've known Mitch for 25 years. Um, he's been a good friend, his wife Janine as well. Uh, uh, my wife Kathleen and uh, met them 26, 27 years ago probably. And then uh, I met them shortly after we started dating. And we just struck up a beautiful friendship that's lasted all this time. And it was really inspiring to go down to Haiti. I'd been down there once before in 2012. I was there just two years after Mitch took over. And it was uh, an amazing place then. But to come back 10 years later to see the kids grow that were so little when I was there 10 years ago, see the improvements on the property that were there, the school they built, the music room. Um, these kids are getting a world-class education and uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible place. Anyway, I'm not going to yammer on. Let's uh, explore the bigger picture with my friend, best-selling author, journalist, former ESPN host of The Sports Reporters, which you can now find on a podcast called The Sports Reporters. It's really good. Uh, my friend, Mitch Album on location at the Have Faith Haiti Mission. Feels longer than three days when you're down here, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it feels I, like you've been here two weeks. You know, it, the only first came two down days. On Wednesday night. I know the first two days felt like two weeks, mm -hmm. and then it was yesterday. I was like, "Oh, it's already Saturday. We're leaving yeah. tomorrow," mm -hmm. and then it feels fast. Yeah, the end comes up fast, but yeah, the time that you spend feels more. I guess it's more concentrated. You know, it's everything's well, an experience. Mitch, thanks for um, sitting down and chatting a bit before we go home. Um, I, I was here, you invited me in 2009, and we're sitting in the music room, which is great because uh, at that time, there wasn't a music room. There was a crumbling wall. It was just two years after the earthquake. But can you just kind of reset the timeline from the earthquake to, um, you know, when you uh, assumed control? Just uh, just briefly the the that kind yeah. of like well i had never been to haiti before um didn't really know much about it earthquake happened on january 12th 2010 and shortly thereafter a pastor came to me at my radio program and asked if i could help try to raise money for him to go down 
to Haiti because he had an orphanage that he thought might have been destroyed because he couldn't get any phone calls through and wasn't able to contact anybody. And it was really the, the idea that kids could be trapped in rubble somewhere and nobody coming for them that kind of plucked at me. And without going into tons of detail, I tried to organize a trip with the government. It fell apart at the last minute, so I ended up putting a trip together myself with a small plane, and uh, we got permission from Carl Levin, who was the uh, senator for Michigan at the time and the head of the Armed Forces Committee, to allow us to fly into Haiti in a 10-minute military window. So nobody else was coming down. There were no commercial flights, and we were able to get in here just a few weeks after the earthquake. And I think that had a lot to do with it. If, 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 I, if I hadn't come until maybe it was safe for everybody to come six months later or something, I never would have seen what I saw. Uh, but what I saw stayed with me forever. I mean, the destruction of this, of this city in particular, the country in general was overwhelming. And, uh, you know, there were literally bodies in the streets and you could smell decaying corpses buried under rubble. You would drive past people on mountains of rock, just pulling rocks out, trying to find people. And uh, amidst all that chaos, we came here to a place that hadn't been destroyed, um, but had been overrun. There were about 250 people living here who had jumped the walls. And, and so it was hard to tell what was the orphanage and what wasn't. There were just all these people, but there were kids. And the kids just, uh, you know, made such an impression on me. Um, and they took to me and they had such joy and happiness in seeing somebody new and you know, the earthquake really hadn't gotten to them. You know, they just yeah. knew things were changing. So I, uh, I ended up being very moved by what I saw and I came back and I wrote a story about it for the free press that, where I work and uh, tried to raise some interesting people helping out. And I ended up putting together a crew of people called the Detroit Muscle Crew. They called themselves that. And uh, there were 23 roofers and plumbers and carpenters and, mm -hmm. and the like. And they started coming down. Roger Penske and Art Van lent us their airplanes to fly us down and take equipment with us because there was nothing. Where are you going to get equipment? Where, you know, so we were bringing tile saws and, and paint and things like you're not supposed to take on an airplane, but we did. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually we built the first toilets here, the first indoor, you know, showers, uh, the first kitchen, really, the first dining room, and ultimately a school. Just for clarification, that pivot point of these improvements that the muscle crew and yourself were doing, was that uh, post you kind of uh, being presented with the opportunity of actually assuming a responsibility? No, it was just you were helping No. Out. Yeah, I was just helping this yeah. pastor out. But what happened was we were coming here month after month and we were building this place up and creating structures that didn't exist, creating opportunities for the kids that didn't exist. But we noticed that the kids were, weren't changing. They were eating, you know, one cup of rice a day or, you know, a couple cups of rice a day and sitting against the wall when they were eating. And, you know, eventually I went to this pastor and I said, I don't understand. Like we're, we're, we're coming down here with mega help, money, efforts and yet nothing seems to be improving on your part and that's when he said to me well i don't really have money to operate this place and i haven't for years i'm 84 years old and that was the moment that i said to him and i'm not sure what i was thinking at the time brian but uh i said well 
you know, I operate a bunch of charities in Detroit. I could probably operate this place if you want me to. I, how hard could it be, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, so the window be? between that 10-minute window military first trip to that conversation, what was roughly Six, that? seven months. Okay. Uh, it was probably in the summer. And we came down in January. Uh, and by October, uh, he basically said, you know, thank you, Lord. You know, here it is. Yeah. And uh, I had taken it over for real by then. We are kind of running it already. And... Um, had Janine, Janine, your wife? Uh, yeah, she'd come that. down. Yeah. So she had down. some context. It wasn't like, hey, honey, guess what I just did? <laughs> well, it may have been a little like that <laughs> uh, now that I think about it. But uh, she had come and she had seen it. She didn't come every trip or anything like that uh, with the guys, but she had seen it. And, you know, my, my wife's fantastic. And, and, you know, if it was for children, she was going to be for it. But I don't think either one of us realized, you know, what we were in for right. when you take on running an, an orphanage. And, you know, before that year was out, I, I would, all of it was my responsibility, all the bills, all the kids, all the medical situations. And um, that began the process of operating it. That's now in its 12th year. And uh, I've made pretty much every mistake a person can make. Uh, I'll cut it. you some breaks on that because I, I anyone would... I mean, it's one thing to talk about Haiti, and I, if I hadn't been here, you could describe to me all you want. There's nothing like being here to understand the challenges of infrastructure and logistics and getting supplies. Like, it's really a miracle. One of the things I wanted to just note, one thing that I keep thinking about this entire trip from nine years ago is the development of the kids. I saw kids that were, I met kids then that were uh, barely three or two and a half to their teens and now I'm meeting them again and the fluency that they speak language, how intelligent they are. There's four kids going to Hope College. There's four other kids that are at a, already in college. Right. And I don't think I saw that level of sophistication nine years ago in those older kids because it was only uh, year, two years after you yeah. got it. So, yeah. And Kara's developed the, the, right. the programming for the school and the staffing and the faculty, there's a lot more staff that you can really, it's so palpable, Mitch, like just visually to me, as you know, like it's all about vision or, you know, awareness of surroundings to me. And it's just amazing. But how has your sense of responsibility, the sense of responsibility that you have increased from this chaotic scramble to get your footing in a place the first few years to then really pivoting to maybe more nurturing? Yeah. And then, well, to understand that or answer that, you sort of have to go through the process of what happened to me and what my responsibilities became from the time I took it over to where we are now. So what I mean by that is, you know, when I took it over, uh, it was what was it existed and all the facility development we had done. But then we began to institute like policies about, okay, well, what kind of kids are we going to admit? I wasn't in charge of admitting new kids when I first came down here. We were just trying to build toilets and put down tile floors and things like that. But all of a sudden that became my responsibility. And that Brian was the biggest thing was like, okay, well, who's our population going to be? So when I got here, there were I, probably in the neighborhood of 20, 
20 or so kids, but a number of those kids were in their 20s. And they were just still hanging out here because there was no, there was nothing outside and the country had, was in ruins and they had grown up here and they never, but they, they didn't even have high school diplomas. They were some of them in seventh grade, sixth grade, you know, and they were in their 20s. So first thing I did was, you know, I, I promised that all of them would get high school diplomas. And so we found a school that was willing to sort of take them in at the levels they were at and try to get them kind of upgraded to their age. Mm -hmm. uh, and within two or three years, all of them had gotten degrees. And, and then being 25 or 27 years old, we said, you got to go. You know, you can't just keep hanging out here because we were at the same time making room for younger kids. And that was the fundamental change was like, OK, who are we going to admit anew? So currently, as you're sitting here with me, there are only... Um, Apolis, Samanza, uh, Naum, and Tete uh, are the only kids who are still here from when I got here. But we have 55 kids. So that means there's 51 kids that I have admitted, that I've made the decision on, and I'm in on every single decision. And that involves you in a different way. That Then suddenly it's not about toilets and it's not about tiles and floors. It's about... I. I remember when that kid came to us. I remember the aunt or the grandmother who dropped him off and said, you know, there's nobody to help this child. I remember when we were called and, you know, for knocks and told that, you know, he had been abandoned under a tree when he was three weeks old or three months old. And, and um, you know, a woman had found him and he had fallen on his head and he had had a stroke. And uh, could we take him, you know? Uh, or when Geisen was brought to us and they said they found him in a, in a malnutrition center living in the hallways and no one had come back for him for years and could we take him? Or other kids that didn't even have names or birth certificates. When you're the person who says yes to that, and I don't say yes easily, and I would say the ratio of no's to yes's is about one yes for every 10 no's that you have to have. You remember every kid that you admitted and they become part of you. And as much as, you know, my, my wife and I have never had children of our own, but that's as much of sort of a birth as we're going to go through. And, and suddenly they're in your lives. And it's just like having a baby. You're, one day the baby's in the womb and the next day there it is in front of you. Well, it's one day the bed is empty in your orphanage and the next day it's filled with this child who you now realize is age two and you're gonna be responsible for it for the rest of their lives. So the involvement becomes much different. It becomes very personal mm -hmm. and the emotions of every kid become your responsibility, the development of every kid, every fight they get in, every, every sickness that they endure, every struggle that they have in class becomes your struggle or your sickness or your issue. And you multiply that by 50 you know, plus, and it's a lot to keep track of. Uh, and so my involvement has gone from operating mm -hmm. to sort of uh, parenting as well as operating, as well as financing, as well as because everything has gotten so much bigger and grown. And, you know, we're on the lip of now this major, major thing that we're undertaking. Yeah. So it's I guess, you know, as I'm rambling on here, I realize it's, it sounds very consuming, and it is. Yeah. It consumes me, you know, pretty much every day. I've, I've just on the periphery heard how um, 
how adamant and uh, how sometimes forceful, and I don't mean that in a negative way, to, to create the outcomes that are needed for this orphanage through your purview. Yeah. And it's a foreign land and it's a, a land that's completely devastated still today. Yeah. I couldn't believe the drive yesterday. Those markets yeah. and just, I don't, uh, you could have gone almost anywhere in the world. Is there any place like Haiti to you that is? Not, not, well, there's no place like Haiti. I mean, that parts of Africa that I've been to have reminded me of, of Haiti, but I think some of it is more visual, uh, you know, shops and small stores and people selling stuff in the street and things like that. And actually, you know, there are other Caribbean countries from Jamaica, you know, and, and Honduras, and where you'll find similar kinds of, you know, economies, uh, you know, street economies. But Haiti, the, the uh, perpetual drama and helplessness that the average person feels here, it's hard to find a place like that anywhere in the world. It's the, certainly not in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, I think there, you know, Haiti is considered the second or third poorest country in the world, something like that, but it's the poorest on this side of the world. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to do most of your travel here, you're going to see a poverty. And see, you saw it out in Port-au-Prince, but this is where the rich people live, right. okay, relative to rest. I've been out to Okai and Miraguan and Jeremy and, and, and all the areas around it. And uh, all you got to do is, uh, you know, first of all, the landing strips in some of these, but the airports, they're just a strip of grass and that's where you put your plane down. And, and then uh, you get in a car and you start to travel around and you realize that there are people living here all the time with no electricity and no running water and no toilets and no, nothing that we would consider the basics of life. What we consider poverty in America is, is, is middle class here. Well, like a basic know? human right that people refer to, like the, at least access to those things. And access yeah. to food, to water, to, to, to medical care. You know, I can't tell you how many kids outside these walls are, are here because their parents died because there wasn't medical care. You know, simple medical care. Chica, you know, who you know, we have a whole story with, her mother died because she gave birth to a baby brother who's here with us now yeah. uh, and uh, died in the bed, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't anything that couldn't have been taken care of if she yeah. was in a hospital, but she gave birth at home and there's no doctor. So that kind of poverty, that kind of hopelessness, that kind of uh, relentless uh, pessimism of yeah. there being anything changing. We're sitting here right now as we're recording this, there's no government Right. There's no government. There's 11 people in the government and an acting prime minister who is being accused of murdering the president. president, you know, and gangs are running the streets and nobody knows when it's going to get better. So it's that backdrop that's right outside these walls that you always yeah. have to kind of keep. I want to underscore the palpability of what you're saying, because uh, the, the, the orphanage, like many properties, has like. Uh, barbed wire around it to keep you from scaling the wall and coming in. Right. But one of the marked visual sort of tensions I felt was that now there's armed security 24-7 inside the gates of this orphanage. Yeah. And you often see guns and shotguns out in the street. Right. And that wasn't quite like that nine years ago. No. So we had a guy who sat in a chair. Yeah, what was inside, his name? Inside, Mr. Germain. Germain. Mr. Germain, yeah. He just sat in a chair and in the you know, shade. we inherited him and he was considered the security guard. I kept thinking, does he even have a weapon? 
uh, yeah, and he sat in the shade, and we, we didn't have the heart to fire him, so he just kind of sat there. Uh, but now it's gotten to the point that not only do you have armed security, uh, but you don't even let your armed security stand outside for fear of their guns being taken away right. by a passing gang member who sees a guy with a gun and says, oh, let me take that gun. Right. So they have guns and they stay inside because they don't want anybody to see their guns. I mean, think about that, you know, like, okay, you're just bracing for someone to come over your walls. And the fact is this year, well, last year now, uh, an orphanage was attacked not far from here. And they came over the walls and they, they uh, killed the security guard and they maimed the director and they raped three of the teenage girls. And it's not as if you get to say, well, we're, you know, we're a charity or we're an orphanage, so they won't touch us. Yes, they will. Uh, we all witnessed, the whole world witnessed the capturing of all those uh, uh, volunteers, you know, missionaries who would come down to work at an orphanage, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so orphanages are not sacrosanct. And believe me when I tell you that that's the biggest motivation behind this massive move that we're making here is safety, you know, facilities, yes, and improvement, yes, and green trees and all that. But it's first about like, we need to be safe. We hear gunshots going off here all the time. The other day, <laughs> I got a photo from, uh, I could show it to you, it's on my iPhone, um, from Yanel, our director, and he wrote, look what landed on our picnic table. And he showed me a bullet, you know, uh, and just so happened, a guy was one of our, 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 I think our cooker, Petit Papa, was sitting at a cooking table and thing, just plopped down. Somebody fired a gun out in the street or whatever. And just Mark and I have heard gunshots uh, fairly close. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a daily occurrence. Yeah. And that sort of underscores the, the you know, the vulnerability of particularly children in general. But I... I we could talk for days, but I, I really just want you to talk. I, I want your sense of, and it's a big question, Mitch, and I apologize for it, but like this sense of fairness for kids globally, that there's such a population, could be here or any other, you know, in the United States too. Detroit has its own challenges. Grand Rapids has its own challenges. Like it just seems unsolvable. Yeah. Like the, the, the amount and the vulnerability and the innocence of these kids. And I'm sure that's why that leveraged your commitment. Well, I, you know? I would disagree with one word that you used there that's unsolvable. Actually, the attraction I, yes, to me of children is that it is solvable. I work in Detroit with many, many levels of charity on the adult scale. Sure. And there are times where I feel with that, that that's unsolvable. And I'm, I'm just, you know, you do it and you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and there's recidivism and there's repeat the same people who you keep helping over, or keep making the same mistakes. And you keep saying, OK, well, that's because of the background and we got to keep rolling around. But that can feel sometimes like what difference am I really making? That's not the case here. Mm -hmm. It's quite the opposite. The hopelessness of the children's situation outside these walls is in marked contrast to the hope and the possibility inside these walls. And I'm sure that that's a reason why I am as motivated and why I'm as present here, because we're all attracted to 
um, areas where we actually feel we're making a difference. The harder stuff is the stuff where you keep doing the same thing over and over again and you say, am I making any difference at all? Here, I never have that question. Yeah. And here it is solvable to a degree. I can't solve the whole country yet. And I've always said about Haiti, you know, like when, when, we're, when I get asked questions or when we're sometimes proposed about trying to deal with stuff on the outside and I say, I can't save this country. Right. And I can't kid myself that anything I do is going to save this country. But... I can work on one little corner of You can it. work on 55. That's things. right. Yeah. And if someone else comes down and works on another 55 and someone else, goes, that, that's how you make the, the, the global dent. But for those 55, it is solvable. It's not that hard. You, you give them love, first and foremost, water, food, education, and a sense of security. And it is like planting something in good soil. Yeah. The same seed sitting out by itself on concrete that isn't going to produce anything suddenly gets into the soil here and grows. And you remarked on it. You've yeah. seen the ch change. So it's the solvability that yeah. becomes the attraction. Yeah. What, what is so uh, palpable, too, is strangers, Mark and I arrive. We're receiving hugs. Right. We're not giving the hugs. We, we have sort of that three foot box we want to put around ourselves at first these are all kids but and they want love of course they want hugs but there's something about the receipt of that as an adult that is just you know it melts you and then every night every morning or any if you hadn't seen a kid for an hour and a half they'll come up and just get under your arm and you know i mean it's such an affectionate place but then as you talk about things being solvable and the progress of 50 focusing on 55 is that development and their trilingual or learning three languages. Uh, I mean, I, uh, Esther is amazing. Her English is amazing. A Angelina, Angelina is a, like, these right. are young kids who have a right. command of English. Right. right. And for every one of those kids that you'll come down, people like yourself will come down and observe correctly, you know, wow, isn't it something what they're capable of doing? I have like an anecdote to counter, you know, like Angeline. Okay, you mentioned Angeline. Angeline came in here. We found Angeline up in, in uh, Jeremy after Hurricane Matthew when it had, I remember flying into Jeremy and as I was landing, I was seeing like reflecting things here, there and everywhere. And I said, what, what, what is that? Like something, the sun is bouncing up. They were rooftops that had blown off of the little tents and houses, and they were just scattered all over the place. And, and meanwhile, as you got closer down, you saw that there was just like a, a frame of what used to be a house or the, you know, a square of dirt that used to be out. And the roof was a mile away. And she was found, as were some others, in a hole in the ground, um, living underneath a piece of tin. And they dug a hole, and they, the family was in, down there. So we brought her here. And... Uh, for the first couple of days, she was pouting and just couldn't, couldn't make her happy. And that's not usual. Usually the kids come and they play. Within a day or two, they kind of enjoying themselves. She just couldn't get her happy for whatever reason. And then we were in the kitchen and she wandered into the kitchen and they were making chicken. I have a video of this that I'll give you. Uh, they were preparing the chicken and the process of preparing chicken here, you know, you get it, you know, a little, literally pluck the feathers out yeah, and then pull the street, pull the skin off. And, and she walks up, she's two and a half and she walks up to the bowl 
and she reaches in and she picks up a piece of chicken and a lemon and she starts like she's been doing it her whole life. And I realized she had been for two and a half years. Somebody had used her as labor. Even at two and a half, they had her in a kitchen or something doing this. And, and we were all like, I mean, she looked like a pro. You know, she's pulling the skin. She's got the lemon better than I could do it. And everybody starts saying, Angelina. And she's, that was the first time she smiled. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, I got something to offer here. Um, and I realized, you know, like, wow, what we don't know about the background of yeah. these kids when they get here. So when you talk about her, I, I go all yeah. the way back to the first story or what was it when they were carried in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when, when uh, Knox was brought in and uh, his, he was asleep and his mother, not his mother, but his woman who found him, didn't want us to know that he couldn't walk. Yes. regularly so she brought him in when he was asleep and she said well he's just sleeping and uh, we said well we can't just take a kid when he's asleep right. we need to wake him up and so we woke him up and he wouldn't speak and uh, we didn't know if he didn't even have the capacity to speak and we saw when he was on his okay his leg was up like this his arm was like, so already I'm thinking there's been some brain damage yeah. and he wouldn't speak and so um, Anashime who was our, our academic director here at the time was from Haiti. Uh, she said, I have an idea. And uh, she sat down behind him, put him in front of her and put two puppets on each hand. And she put the puppets up in front of him so that he couldn't see a person. He could just see the puppets. And she started talking to him in Creole with the puppets and he spoke. And that's how we knew we could speak. So when I see Knox, I see that story right. and everything that came forward from that story. Well, Knox, just to clarify, is, you know, my, uh, as you know, my daughter Faith has cerebral palsy. Knox has cerebral palsy. His is on the left, Faith is on the right. So I took to this kid right away. He has an AFO brace on his uh, left foot. Right. And I was like, this kid has CP. Right. Like, how is that happening? Like, and now I know why, but just the, but he is also, the sweetest, uh, by all accounts, I'm not saying it. No, he Staff is. were telling me he's yeah, the he wins nicest. the award. Yeah. Uh, Character-wise, just, I mean, I love that kid. Yeah, and you brought him to Michigan as well. And Kathy, my wife, uh, met Knox. Uh, he he comes to Michigan to every three months. For to, and what, what is that for? That's for AFOs. He's growing. He's a tall boy. Yeah, for working on his arm and his leg. And yeah. they give him injections and... And then they work on him for therapy, and he's much improved from what he was. Yeah. But, yeah, we see Knox every three months. Is he doing the Botox? The, it's the Botox yeah, injections uh -huh. to release the plasticity. Yeah, yeah Faith had a similar thing yeah. uh, and went through that. And then just back to uh, Angeline for a minute is just uh, Mark and I. She's glued to Mark. Like, mm -hmm. she she loves Mark, and she likes the video. She kind of probably also has a little, you know, a little infatuation with him because he's so nice and but she's the, one of the brightest kids I've ever met anywhere. Her sense of humor, she gets sarcasm, yeah. which I'm probably way too sarcastic. I have yeah. to dial it down, yeah. you know? And, and you're agreeing, yes, you do. <laughs> no, no, I'm agreeing on Angeline. <laughs> but I mean, it's the intelligence that she has to come from underneath a tin roof uh, in the worst of circumstances and just trying to feed herself to seeing who she is now at seven or Eight, or I don't know how old she is. Right. Actually, she's probably she's in that neighborhood. Nine or nine ten. I want to just pivot quickly to uh, because uh, one of your 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 latest books was Finding Chica, which all the proceeds for that book 
go directly to this orphanage. But she also was transformative in you, you and Janine's life. You went on a global search for a cure, extended her life by a very long time. She didn't have a good prognosis. That fundamentally changed you. You write beautifully on it. I would just recommend if you're listening to this and you get it, get finding, uh, by finding Chica, but I must say the audio, then the, the audio clips you have of her bring a texture to that story that I don't think would be quite as much on the page as a sense of who she was because she yeah. was a special girl. So yeah. tell me about that so people have an opportunity to know if they uh, acquire that book, they, they can directly help day to day by, by doing that. Yeah, well, I mean, what you said is true. All the proceeds of that go here. Chica was born three days before the earthquake and survived the earthquake when the little cinder block house that her one room cinder block house that her mother and her were sleeping in collapsed around them during the earthquake. She was asleep and the roof fell backwards from what I understand. The walls fell down and they were kind of left on the bed naked to the sky. It's like, okay, what was that? Uh, and that night she slept in a bed of sugarcane leaves they made out of, uh, in the dirt because they didn't have anything left. And uh, that's where she slept apparently for the next six weeks. So I always say Chica was born tough. She was three days old and she survived an earthquake and slept in sugarcane leaves. And then two years later, her mother died giving birth to her baby brother, as I mentioned. And uh, she died because there was no doctor present. Uh, she didn't need to die. That day, Chica was taken away that morning when her mother died by a woman who was her godmother. And uh, within less than a year, she had brought her here to us. And Chica was the, she came to us when she was less than three years old. So she was the youngest for a stretch and she was the loudest, bossiest, pushiest kid we had. It was always like, oh, Chica, you roll your eyes, Chica, Chica's in charge again, Chica. She was funny, you know, she's like, I wrote in the book, like Ethel Merman in size one shoes. You, know, she, <laughs> so you could hear her scream across the courtyard and she would just tell everybody where they could go, what they could do. And, and she became very endearing, you know, because she was so small, but she was bossing everybody else around. And then when she was five, uh, Alan, who was our director at the time, noticed that her face was drooping. And I said, well, her face is drooping. Did you take her to a doctor? Yeah. What the doctor say? He gave her eye drops. Eye drops. I mean, like, what, where on earth do you go from face drooping to eye drops? You know, uh, but they did. Uh, so I said, Alan, it's not eye drops. It's neurological. I thought maybe it was Bell's palsy, something mm -hmm. which you know, in hindsight, would have been just fine. Right. But um, it turned out to be something called DIPG, diffuse intrinsic pontinglioma, which is a four-letter word for death. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody survives it. Usually kids last about four or five months. Um, she was told after they did exploratory brain surgery on her in Michigan and took out what they could. Was the, was the first surgery and consultations at uh, University of Michigan Health? Is yes. that what that was? The University of Michigan. They were nice enough to work with me and not make me pay for the whole thing out of pocket because of course there's no insurance and hundreds of thousands of dollars but um, you know we were told that hopefully it's a stage one tumor you know but might be stage two 
And if it's stage two, you know, she might need some radiation or whatever before she can go back to Haiti. We were kind of braced for that. And then we walked into the room and we're told it was DIPG. And we're looking at each other like, okay, what is that? And I said, well, is that stage one or two? That's how naive I was. And he said, it's stage four and uh, it's incurable. And I said, well, what would you do? You know, if you were us, I mean, we're facing all the, it's like five minutes earlier, we're thinking how long before we take her back. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden we're being told she's gonna die on our watch. And I said, what would you do? And he said, well, I would take her back to Haiti and you know, just she'll, she'll decay quickly and wither and she'll lose the ability to walk and swallow, and, but at least she'll be home. And that's when Janine and I looked at one another and this is what I mean by like, these are not just kids or numbers to me. I know the story, the backstory. And you know, there are children in every way sense of the word, you know, for us. And I knew how tough she was. I said, you don't understand this girl. You're gonna tell me she's gonna be dead in four months. It's not gonna happen, you know. She's, her sheer willpower alone won't let that happen. And if she's gonna fight, we'll fight. Just tell us, tell us the experimental stuff. Tell us the stuff that's on the cutting edge and we'll do it. And that's what we did yeah. for two years. And she didn't live four months or eight months or 12 months or 16 months, she lived two years. Yeah. And those two years were a great gift for my wife and I, not sure for Chica, but right. you know, I think she also got something out of those two years. We both got to be part of a family, yeah. which was something we both Well, hungry. you write about that beautifully in the book in the way that it, it ties dif different parts of your, your, your decades long career to that fundamental change and the love and sort of that becoming a father, you know, no yeah. one else was her father at that point to, in that sense. Um, and Kathy and I and my girls also got a chance to meet Chica, we went bowling one time at the, uh, uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend and we yeah. all went bowling and I just remember it was just, I think we met her on a couple of occasions and she, that's why the audio was so great because uh, hearing her voice again in that audiobook was, it, it really just layered all the textures for that. If there's anything else you want to say about Chica before I move on, I just want one other point I want to uh, ask you about. It doesn't need to be long, but you can start with anything else you want to add about Chica, if anything. If not, I just wanted to talk about the faith and, and religion. The kids right now, are, it's Sunday morning. They're at church. You have a nice little chapel here. It's, um, and the importance of faith. And is there a particular doctrine to the faith that the kids are learning day in and day out? We're also, we're blessed with having... Someone you invited on this trip, Rabbi Steve, there is teaching kids about Judaism and, and that religion and different parts of it. Mm -hmm. And um, just wanted your take, because I don't really know, like, uh, exactly. I know it's a Christian, obviously, uh, some, some of that sort of mindset, but then right. the, introducing other religions as well. Well, I would say you said is there something else, Chica, so I can tie those two answers together. Chica, <clears throat> one time, Towards the end of her life, uh, she was in our bedroom and she started singing. And she, as I said, she had a voice you could hear forever. And uh, we heard her from out in the kitchen and she was singing this uh, song, hymn, I guess you might call it, 
that the kids sing here. And so Janine went in to film her with a camera uh, because she said, oh, she's singing this, it's cute. And she went in with the camera and um, usually when you go in with a camera and a kid is singing, they stop singing, you know, that's the big trick. But Chica kept singing for like eight minutes and we have the whole thing. Um, and she never really acknowledged Janine the whole time she was there. Janine was this close with the camera and she, she was like looking out and looking and she was singing the song, the lyrics of which, which are, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. And she kept singing it over and over and then she would sing the verses. And she said, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. And she would sing it and kind of look around and, but never look at Janine. And we always felt like that was some kind of godsend moment that she was just mm -hmm. communing with the Almighty at that moment. But that is our philosophy here, mm -hmm. that everyone is a child of God and all these kids are children of God. And therefore, that makes them all related. And that makes us all related. Mm -hmm. We're all in the same family. So our religious philosophy begins with that. And then from a practical faith point of view. It's a Christian mission. It was a Christian mission before I got here. And so retain a Christian mission, you know, while I'm here and after I'm gone. But we also teach, unlike other parts of Haiti or other parts of the world, uh, being Christian doesn't mean that therefore you shut off everybody else or you tell everybody else they're going to hell or, you know, and uh, your, your sole purpose in life is to try to convert them. Or, right. That's not the approach here. We, we try to expose them to other religions and tell them that all faiths honestly practiced are, are, are good and mean something to the people who practice them because we plan for them to be part of the world, not just part of a little mm -hmm. third of an acre orphanage. And if you want to be part of the world, you need to show that kind of respect. So they have learned, I mean, they take classes in comparative religion which is, I'm pretty sure, the only orphanage in Haiti that offers that. <laughs> Maybe the only school, uh, but sure. they, you know, they've learned about Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism. And when we can, we bring people who, he, Rabbi Steve's not even the first rabbi to be here. Mm -hmm. We had a rabbi here 10 years ago who helped put some of the floors down with us and, uh, and did services and prayers. And, you know, uh, What's most important for us is that they, they have a humility and a gratitude um, that comes with faith and comes with realizing you're not the be-all, end-all of the universe. Mm -hmm. And everything in their lives is a result of the good grace of people who believe they have an obligation to their fellow man. And most of that comes from a sense of faith. I mean, I'm sure we've had some atheists come down here or, and that's fine you know if they're helping out it doesn't matter to us uh, but I think most of the people who come here have that same kind of sense of, of community with the world and children of the world and and, mm -hmm. and you know that we're all under God and, and we're all children of God and so they need to know and we emphasize it that they owe gratitude both to God and to their fellow man, you know, for what they are. And, and it, it reflects all the way up in our philosophy, our practice of the fact that after they go to college, they are obligated to come back here for two years and to live with us and to bring whatever skill they have learned 
and they can stay in college or graduate school, whatever, but when they're done, that's where they come. So Mono, who will be a doctor, he'll be our doctor for two years before he's anybody else's doctor. Or someone who's going to be an engineer, he'll be our engineer for two years because they need to understand that this is a perpetual thing. You have to give back. And all the people who have given to them, you can't just take and take and take and take and take and say, thanks a lot, I'm off, I'm off to my life now. And they are, to a person, not only accept that, but they, they look forward to it. They already talked to me, the ones who are going off to college. When I come back and work, where am I going to live and where am I going to stay? So I'm glad to see that. You know, they have an understanding that they are the beneficiaries of kindness Mm-hmm. And they therefore need to be the givers of kindness themselves. Um, have faith. Katie.org is where you can go and donate uh, much of the uh, operating um, income. And yeah, you can share it if you want. But uh, much of this, uh, there, there is charitable help and people donate and you have some support. But the large, uh, vast majority comes directly from you and Janine personally. So an opportunity to help in any way helps you do more. Yeah. And uh, we can use the help. <laughs> we'll just, yeah, you can use the help. Yes, All right. Thanks, Mitch. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that was fun, guys. Uh, I am going back to Haiti for a longer stretch to complete a different part of this project that I'm working on that I can't really talk about too much with Mitch, but. Uh, all good things. I really want to encourage you to check out Mitch's episode page at the full exposure podcast.com show page for Mitch. You can visit all the links for the various charities, the have faith Haiti mission, but I put uh, galleries of the kids and different portraits that I've shot of kids during this trip uh, that I was down there just a few weeks ago. And posted a lot of content, including video excerpts of Mitch and I's conversation. And it's just a really rich page. It'll give you a visual of what uh, the kids look like and uh, just what a cool place it is. So um, go to Have Faith Haiti Mission. No, sorry. Just go to havefaithhaiti.org. And if you can flip, again, five, ten bucks, hundred bucks, whatever you can do. It will further Mitch's work at the Have Faith Haiti mission during a time when it's very expensive and unsafe. Uh, Haiti's very unsafe right now, and um, the kids need uh, all kinds of extra um, attention and um, security and other things at the orphanage, and Mitch does not spare any expense for their health, safety, and well-being. So anything you can do to help the HaveFaithHaiti.org uh organization you can find it on the show page just go to fullexposurepodcast.com slash mitch to get everything you need all right everybody drop me a comment about this show i'd love to hear what you thought about this conversation with mitch album and uh let's go get it let's have a great day The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Peter Hahn and University of Michigan Health West in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections.